I want to follow up on some of the things that we studied and we talked about this morning and I'm posing this question, why internalize Scripture? Why do we take it in? Uh, why do we make it a part of our lives? As uh, I've shared my, my testimony before, I was raised really in the earliest years of my life without any kind of exposure to church of any sort, much less Christianity. I think perhaps when I was six, five years old, somebody took me to a VBS of some sort. I basically remember some flannel graph Bible stories, and I remember sitting in a pew in a small church building that I could barely see over, people singing very loudly and someone yelling very loudly at the front. Uh, that was only just once or twice. My mother was divorced when I was probably five or six and remarried. Uh, my father, who adopted me, gave me his name. And we converted, and I was raised in another Christian tradition, Roman Catholicism. Uh, in that tradition, uh, I began learning some things about Christianity, some basic uh, cardinal truths about God, that he is sovereign, that he is three in one, that Jesus did come and die on a cross. I didn't understand the gospel. The gospel was not really even a word that I heard very much growing up. I uh, was active. I uh, served in services and masses growing up. I was an altar boy. And uh, by the time I was in just before high school, I thought, like many young Catholic boys, that I might even one day grow up and be a priest. Uh, I grew up and had six children is what I did. <laughs> but, um, but, but I thought I might. And so for a brief period of time, I went to a Vincentian seminary in Cape Girardeau, Missouri, at the time, that was the only, one of only two schools in the country that allowed high school age students to enter into a seminary track. And, um, and I visited there. My parents were moving at that time to Ohio and asked me to wait to make that kind of major decision. They asked me to wait until after high school. And so respecting their wishes, we moved to Ohio and I entered for the first time a public school setting. It was a high school setting. And, um, and that was kind of a culture shock for me. I had been in private schools, a lot of them, seven different elementary schools as we moved around in the Air Force, but most of them were private schools, parochial schools. And so when I entered the public school world, uh, I, was, I stood out. I felt like a square peg in a round hole. I, um, my hair was short. Everybody else's was long. Uh, I, wore, I didn't even wear the right clothes. Uh, everybody else had cool clothes I didn't have. I eventually got some cool clothes. I wouldn't wear those today. But uh, the polyester would be too much static um, at this stage of life. But, um, but during my freshman year of high school, my sophomore year of high school, my junior year of high school, uh, I eventually came to a place where I quit attending church. And the world literally became for me a very dark place. And I didn't lose faith in the existence of God. What was inside of me was mostly anger at God for a lot of reasons, and I don't need to go into that tonight. Um, what I had understood about Christianity was mostly an understanding of Catholicism and Catholic doctrine and teaching, but it was not really an understanding of the gospel. And so I came to a place a summer before my senior year of high school where the world was so dark, I really did not have a feel, a reason to live. And I had uh, 
thoughts of ending my life and, um, and, uh, and came to a place where I contemplated that and almost did that. Uh, it was about that same time that I began to meet some other people, people who were different than any others that I had known. Uh, they went to church all the time. They were in church Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night. I thought these people were crazy. Uh, one of them um, was a, a particularly good friend, and, and so I began going. And as I went uh, to hang out, I began to hear the gospel. I began to hear the Bible being taught for the first time in my life. And the Holy Spirit took the truth of the Scripture and awakened inside of me a desire to know more, not just of the Bible, but to know more of who God was, because I did not know these things about God. And I was able to read them in the Scripture for myself, and, and I was thrilled, I was excited. And, and these people were, were Baptists. That didn't really matter to me. What mattered to me, what was exciting to me, is they said, you know, God can help you understand the Scripture. And in helping you understand the Scripture, it'll help you understand why we do the things we do, because we really want our church to reflect what the Bible teaches. And, and so I discovered that, that within, among the large world of people who call themselves Christians, there are different approaches to the Scripture. There are some churches and denominations that take the position that the church is the one who is most important and able to understand and teach about God, and the Scripture really is subservient to what the church teaches. And so the church is the final authority in that kind of a system. What I discovered, though, is that there is another group of Christians who say, no, we hold the Bible as our final authority. We believe the Bible was God's way of revealing himself to us and revealing his will to us and helping us to understand what pleases him and how we should live. Well, in the course of hearing those things, I came to a place where I came to understand the good news of Jesus Christ, that, that I did sin, yes, and I knew it, and I was very conscious of it. In my Catholic tradition, um, you understand sin. Every sin counts, and every sin has to be dealt with, and every sin needs to be confessed and so forth. You take sin seriously. What I did not understand is that what Jesus was doing up there on the cross was dying for my sins, all of them. And that salvation was not something I earned, but something that I was given as a gift and received by faith. And so I put my trust in Jesus Christ in the fall of 1978. This coming fall, I think, will be 40 years in a few more months. And my life changed. And I found myself in love with the Scripture because God spoke to me through His Word. I didn't know what to do with it. I just read it a lot. I got asked to teach Bible lessons every now and then, and, and I would really read extra amounts of time as I, as I prepared for those. And um, at 17, 18, 19 years old, I began to speak, and I began to preach, and I began to teach as God was showing me things, and, and I was beginning to put things together as the Holy Spirit made things clear. But, but it was not until I was in college that I began to understand that what God wants me to do with Scripture was not just teach it and preach it. He wanted it to become part of my life. He wanted his word to live inside me, that I needed to take it inside my life, and that in that way, he could truly change me. 
when I was at the University of Texas in an engineering program, I ran into some guys who were part of a Christian organization called the Navigators. And they put a high stress or emphasis on memorizing Scripture as a way of understanding it and learning and growing. And so I began to memorize Scripture then. Uh, later, I made friends with some individuals in uh, Memphis. I attended for a while Bellevue Baptist Church as a college student. And there were some people there that challenged me not to just memorize a verse or two, but to memorize whole chapters of Scripture. And so I began to do that. I began to memorize chapters. And uh, not so that I could recite them to you verbatim, but so that they could dwell in me and become part of me and become part of my thinking. So tonight, I want to give you or make a case for why do I internalize Scripture? Why do we do this? Because, and for several reasons, I think on a grand scale as a nation, we are more and more biblically illiterate. We, we simply don't even know what the Bible says, much less what it is. And that's not, I'm not talking about people outside the church. I'm talking about those of us inside the church. And, and we come, if we come every week, we come and we sit in a Bible study, and hopefully in that Bible study they are studying the Bible and not just talking about the latest news item or, um, and I'm talking about across Southern Baptists anyway, across our churches, not talking about the latest thing in the news or some, something in sports or or, or the latest book that we've read, but we're actually reading the Scripture and we're studying the Scripture and we're asking questions about the Scripture. And if you come and do that one Sunday a week and then, and then you go on and you come into a worship service where the Word of God is preached and taught, then you have a couple of hours a week where that takes place. And I'm going to come back and say a word about this, but my word to you or my question to you is what about the rest of the week? What happens the rest of the week between you and the Word of God? If the Scripture is God's way of revealing Himself, it is one of the primary ways in which I can have fellowship with Him, communion with Him, and get to know Him and experience Him in my life. I want to look at seven texts tonight, seven passages of Scripture. Uh, I want to move through the first uh, six of them quickly, and then I want to pause at the seventh one, and that'll constitute our study tonight. There are three questions I want to pose of each of these first six texts. I did something very similar, by the way, with our Thursday morning men's Bible study group this past fall, where we focus on 15 Bible verses every man should know. And we, we the very first session we did, we talked about these things that we're talking about tonight. Why should I memorize Scripture? Why should I put Scripture into my mind, into my life? And, um, and so here are three questions we want to ask. What is the Scripture? According to the verses that we're going to be looking at, what is the Scripture? What is this? Is this just like any other book? Or, or does it say of itself that it is something more than just any other book? So what is the Scripture? Secondly, what do I do with it? What should I do with it? And then the third question is Why? Why should I bother with Scripture at all? And so with those three questions, let's take up the first passage, uh, Joshua 1.8. And, and here it is. This, and these are, this is being spoken to Joshua. And this is what it says. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate in it day and night that you may observe to do according to all that is written in it. 
For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. What does that say about the Scripture? What is the Scripture according to this text? What is the Scripture just looking at this verse? What is it? The book of the law. And the book of the law consists of what? Anybody? The first five books of the Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. First five books, also known as the Torah to our Jewish friends. And, um, and he says, these first five books, and at the time, that's all they had. He says, this book of the law shall not depart from your mouth. So if it doesn't depart from your mouth, where is it living? In here. He says, you don't let it escape. It's just a euphemism for saying it, it lives here. Shall not depart from your mouth. But you're going to meditate in it. So what do I do with it? I meditate. And that Hebrew word, we're going to see it in other verses tonight, that Hebrew word for meditate means a number of different things, but the core meaning is to murmur, almost to talk to yourself, to mutter under your breath. Uh, sometimes it's taught that it, it, it um, is like a cow when it ruminates. You know how a cow digests hay. This is almost up there with menopause if I describe this in detail. Um, how, uh, how he eats the hay and he chews it and he swallows it, and then what does he do with it? Spits it back up. He chews it some more, and he swallows it. And then what does he do with it? He spits it back up. He ruminates it over and over and over again. And, um, and this word meditate is associated with that, that process. One of the things you need to know about Scripture and how it was treated in the Old Testament is there was no such thing as a silent reading of the Scripture. When someone read anything, not just the Bible, but when they read anything in ancient times, they read it aloud. Reading silently to yourself was not something that typically people did. And so if you, were, if you were reading Scripture, you would read it out loud. If you're thinking about it, you would think out loud, almost talking to yourself. And so that would produce a, a low sound, a murmuring, a talking, a sound. Maybe somebody else can understand what you're saying, but you're talking to yourself and you're thinking about it. And so this word meditate means to think about it, to reflect on it. And then what is the... What, what should I do with it? What's the, what, what's the goal? Um, it's to observe, to do according to all that's written in it. Not just to know it, but to do it. And, and why? Why do we handle the Scripture this way? According to this text, it's for then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. That word prosperous means to be, move from one condition to a better condition. One state of being to a better state of being. And, and how does that happen? When we meditate on the Scripture. You are better off, he says. And you're going to move to a better place. And you're going to go to the next level in your life if you meditate on Scripture. So that's what he's saying at this point from that first text. Let's go to the second one. Uh, this is Psalm chapter 1, verses 1 and 3. It says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful. This person rejects all worldly input into their life. In contrast, but his delight, what he gets excited about, is in the law of the Lord. And in his law he meditates day and night. He shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that brings forth its fruit in its season, whose leaf also shall not wither, and whatever he does shall Prosper. There's a couple words there that we saw in Joshua 1 8. 
What are they? What's the first word? We've seen it in both verses. The word meditate. We saw that in both, wor- both places. The law, yes, we saw that in both places. What's the third one we've seen in both places? Prosper. Prosper. Now, so what is Scripture here? It's the same as in Joshua 1.8. What is Scripture? It's the, the law. Okay, it's the first five books of the Bible. And this person is doing the same thing with it. They're meditating in the Scripture. They delight in it. And because they delight in it, they meditate. They think about it. Now, I don't know if you have read lately Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. But typically, those are the ones we try to get through so we can get to the good stuff. But in ancient times, this was all they had were those first five books. And they delighted in it. Why did they delight in the law of the Lord? Well, as they read this law about what you should do and shouldn't do, it reflected something about what was right and wrong. It reflected more than that. It reflected something of the character of God. And they were able to look past the words and past the rules, past the laws to see God. And so when they read that stuff, they were having a vision, a better insight into who God is. And so they delighted in it. And so this person is meditating, they're murmuring, they're talking to themselves about Scripture, and whatever he does shall prosper. Let's look at the third passage, Psalm 119, verse 11. Your word I have hidden in my heart that I might not sin against you. How many of you learned that in vacation Bible school? Yeah, everybody, that should be unanimous if you've ever been to VBS. Your word I have hidden in my heart that I might not sin against you. What is the scripture? How is it described here? As what? Your word. Just simply your word. Anything you have spoken. Anything you have said, God. And uh, what should I do with it? Hide it in my heart. What is the heart? We talked about it this morning. The heart is that immaterial part of us. And it's, it's co- it covers everything. The mind, the will, the emotions. The, uh, even the human spirit is composed of the heart. The immaterial part of you is your heart. He says, I have taken your word. What have I done with it? I've hidden it in my heart. And then why? That I might not sin against you. Notice he doesn't say that I might not sin. It's that I might not sin against you. This person understood sin in the sense of what it did to his relationship to God. And he was deeply interested in maintaining a right and a wonderful relationship with God. And he said, I want to know your word. I'm making it a part of me. I'm hiding it in my heart because I don't, I don't want anything between us. And I want to walk with you. I want to be intimate with you. I don't want to sin against you. Uh, the fourth passage, James 1.21. This one's rich. James says, therefore, lay aside all filthiness and overflow of wickedness. And it's like a gushing fountain is the word picture that's there. And if you don't put anything else in your heart, uh, what is naturally there is this. And he says, lay aside all filthiness and overflow of wickedness. And instead of that, he says, and receive with meekness 
the implanted word which is able to save your souls. So how is the scripture described here? What is it? It's the implanted word. And what's really special about that is is it's an agricultural term for grafting. And it's being used as an adjective. He says, receive with meekness the engrafted word of God. And and if any of you know anything about grafting, if you're going to take a branch from a particular apple tree and you cut it off of that particular tree and you take it over to another apple tree, different variety, and you graft it into that tree, it'll still produce fruit. But does it produce fruit of the tree that's like the tree that it's in? Or does it produce fruit of the tree that it left? Anybody know? It produces fruit of the tree that it that it left or that it's in? I'm I'm I know I, I'm deaf on my left side and I can't hear with my right. Okay? Does it bear fruit of the tree that it left or the tree that it's in? The tree that it left. Okay? That's a, that's a wonderful thing about grafting is, is you can have a tree, I, I suppose, that could be bearing multiple kinds of apples because if you cut those branches off certain trees, you graft it in, it bears the fruit of the tree that it left. And what's he saying here about the Word of God? He says, receive of meekness the engrafted Word of God. It's going to bear fruit of the tree it's in, No, of the tree that it left. And so when you take the Word of God and you make it part of your life, it's going to change you. And so the Scripture has a a dynamic and a powerful quality to it that no other book has. You can pick up a classic piece of literature. We we, uh, just came through the Christmas season. You can pick up the Christmas carol. There's a lot of Christian, Christian truth embedded in that and that piece of fiction, the Christmas carol, you can read it all day long, will not change your life the way Scripture can change your life. It has a power, it has a dynamic, because it is the Word of God. So what do we do with it? We receive with meekness. There's, um, that word meekness is, describes something that's under control, that you, you, you're maintaining control, a disciplined process. And he says, receive it in a disciplined manner, this engrafted word of God. And, and why? Why do it? Because it's able to save your soul. You say, well, pastor, I thought I was saved when I trusted Jesus. That scripture says, receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. I thought my soul was already saved. Well, here's where we, we find something extra about the New Testament that perhaps you may or may not have been aware of, but you have, at least, we know from Scripture, you have a body, and the inner part of you is called the heart. And in 1 Thessalonians 5.23, he breaks the heart down. He says you have a body, a soul, and a spirit. A body, a soul, and a spirit. When you trust Jesus Christ, you are born again spiritually. The Holy Spirit of God comes in and merges with your spirit. You become a new creation, a new creature. It is permanent, and God is present in your life. Your body, I'm sorry, there's no hope for your body. Amen? This body's wearing out. It's breaking down. 
It's getting, it's, it's tired. It's getting old. It gets ill. It gets sick. It breaks. And, and so your body isn't saved right now. I'm sorry to tell you that. It will be saved because you're going to get a new body. Glory, hallelujah. You're going to get a new one. But that's in the future. So your spirit has been saved the moment you trusted Jesus. Your body will be saved, and you're going to read scriptures that talk about your future salvation because that is in the future. Your soul, your mind, your will, your emotions, your inner man is in a process of being saved. Your mind can still sin. Your emotions can even be sinful. There's sinful anger. Your will, you can make wrong choices. And so God is in the process of rescuing your inner man, rescuing your soul, changing you from the inside out. He says, receive with meekness the engrafted word of God, because when you take God's word into your life, it bears fruit, not of the tree that it's in, but the tree that it left. And in that way, it can change your soul, save your soul, make your soul whole, rescue you on the inside. Some of you struggle with some things on the inside that none of us know about. You struggle with fears and anxieties. You struggle with hurts. You struggle with, with um, areas in your life that you feel like you'll never overcome or you'll never change or it's never going to be any different. Listen, the Word of God can change your soul. It can take those things that you've struggled with your entire life and it can transform those things and change those things. So that's James 121. I love James 121. There's another scripture, though, a fifth one I want us to see. 2 Timothy 3.16. You have to listen more quickly. This one should be familiar to you. We all, we all learned this. If, if you've been Baptist for any length of time, I hope you've heard this a lot. 2 Timothy 3.16. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, and for instruction in righteousness. I don't know another passage of Scripture that says to us more about what Scripture is than this one. When he says, for all Scripture, the word literally, graphe, means something that's graphic, the writings, all the writings. All the writings, he says, are given by inspiration of God. And that the, the, the statement there is given by inspiration of God is actually one word in the Greek language that underlies this English translation. And it's the Greek word theonoustos. And theonoustos is a compound word where theo means God and noustos means breathed or breath. He says all the writings are the breath of God. All the writings are the breath of God. I think if that's all I knew about Scripture, I would need to read it every day. Because I can open this up, and God can breathe on my soul if I'll read it. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable. It's profitable. And um, it adds something to our life. And it is profitable in four ways. Doctrine, uh, that's basically the word for teaching. Uh, it will tell you what's right, will tell you what's wrong, tell you what's true, 
doctrine. It's profitable for reproof. Reproof is the idea of showing me where I've gone wrong. When you reprove someone, you're saying, hey, that's not right. And Scripture will do that for you. It will show you what's not right in your life. It's also profitable for correction. That word means to improve faults. And so not only does it show me what's wrong with me, it shows me how to, how to grow, how to fix what's wrong with me. And then for instruction in righteousness, literally it's training like you would train a child. Um, training in right living. So the Bible has all of these qualities to it, and that's what it's good for. But I, I can't get past that part where it says all Scripture is breathed by God. It's just God-breathed. And uh, because of that door that opens to, in our relationship with Him. Sixth Scripture, 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. This is one we studied uh, two summers ago. Therefore, laying aside all malice, all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and all evil speaking... As newborn babes desire the pure milk of the word that you may grow thereby. What is the scripture called here? What's it called here? The pure milk, the pure milk of the word. And um, what should I do with it? I should desire it. That word means to crave, and he says to crave it like a baby craves milk. And I've told the story before of how you know, raising six children. Our wife, my wife fed them, nursed them. And you know, we always went through this process on Sunday mornings where she would wait till the last minute to feed them up so maybe she could get through Sunday school and, and worship without having to feed one. And so I would wind up holding the child while she was getting ready, serenely getting ready, fixing her hair, and putting on her makeup and her clothes. And and I'm over here, when that baby gets, starts whining and whimpering and getting louder and louder and screaming and wailing, there's nothing I can do except bounce this child. And more than once, I went into where she was serenely getting ready, and I would say, sweetheart, I do not have what this baby wants. And she would stop and, and address the need of that child. What do we do with Scripture? We're to crave it. We're to desire it like that. And that's something I can choose to do. I can choose to long for Scripture, long for what it can do for me. Why? Why should I do that? That you may grow thereby. And that growth is automatic. If I will crave it, if I will digest it, if I will bring it into my life, I will grow. Just like a plant grows, just like a baby grows, that you may grow thereby, but it needs sunlight, needs water. We need the Word of God in order to grow. Well, that brings me to the last scripture, and we're talking about renewing our minds. And I just want to read the scripture and then point out a couple of things, and then we're going to close. The last scripture I want us to look at is Romans 12, verses 1 and 2. And I want to pause on about four, three or four different parts of this verse. It says, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God. That you present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. I made reference to this passage this morning. Now look at this next slide. The word present. 
He's saying, based on the mercies of God. This is chapter 12, verse 1. He's saying, based on what I've just been saying, based on the previous 11 chapters of everything that I've been telling you about God, based on this entire revelation of the gospel, I want you to do something. Here's what you need to do. You need to take your body. If you give your body, everything goes with it, doesn't it? Your body goes, your heart goes, your mind, your will, your emotions, your human spirit, everything goes. He says, give your body to God like a living sacrifice, as a living sacrifice. I think of an altar. They would kill the animals before they would put them on the, on the fire. Why? Because they're not going to stay on the fire unless they're dead. And, um, and so they would kill the animals first. He says, you climb up on there as a living sacrifice. I don't want you dead. I want you alive. And what happens in the altar is that that sacrifice would be consumed by the fire. And as it's consumed by the fire, that aroma, the smoke, would be like an offering to God. And he says, like a, like a, a sacrifice on an altar that's being burned up for God. He said, I want you to Give God your body in such a way that you are constantly being offered to God, not in a dead way, not in an unconscious way, not in a way that doesn't pay attention to anything like a dead animal, but as a living sacrifice, always be consumed for Him. That's the first thing I see in that verse. Next slide. He says, and do not be conformed to this world and that word, as the name implies, the word in, in conformed implies, means to be, to be pressed into a mold, a predetermined set of decisions, a predetermined approach to life that is the world. You know, the world will tell you what to do at every stage of life if you will listen. The world will tell you when you're 17 or 18 what you're supposed to do with your life. The world will tell you in your 20s what you're supposed to do with your life. The world will tell you in your 60s what you're supposed to do with your life. And the Bible is saying here, surrender to God, offer yourself to God, and he says, and do not let the world push you into its mold. God's word to you may be radically different than his word to somebody else. What he wants you to do with your life when you're 65 may be entirely different than what he tells somebody else to do with their life when they're 65. Do not get pressed into a cookie-cutter mold of your life. And then he says, but be transformed. That's the word I wanted to concentrate on. Be transformed by the renewing of your minds. That word transform, and that's why I've used the butterfly image, one of the ancient Christian symbols. If you wanted to let someone know secretly you were a Christian, it was the butterfly. Because it started out as a caterpillar, goes into a cocoon, and there's a metamorphosis. It changes its structure. That's what metamorphosis mean. Morphe means structure. It's skeleton. It changes everything, and, it, and, it, and it's transformed. In the very nature of what it is, become something new. And he says, don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed. Totally different than everybody else. By the renewing of your mind. That's the next, the next slide. By the renewing of your mind. That renewing of your mind is what we've been talking about in the way that we handle the Word of God. If I take that scripture and I bring it into my life, and as I get to know God and I get to understand more and more of what he wants for me, I surrender to him. 
is a living sacrifice. That's the first step. That's what I've got to do. Now, the renewing of the mind is a process that's got to include more than just what happens on Sunday morning for you. If you think, well, I'm a Christian, I'm born again, I know I trusted Jesus, and I go to church every week, but my life transformation process that God wants to take you through, and it's not going to happen with one hour or two hours a week. Let me tell you why that happens. Why does surrender change everything, and why does the absence of surrender, we give God just a little bit here and there, why is that not enough? Well, I want you to see this little bit of math I have on the screen. Look at this next slide. There are 168 hours in a week. Anybody have more hours in their week than that? That's all we get, 168 hours a week. If you sleep just a little less than seven hours a night on average, uh, that may be a lot. That's 48 hours of sleeping. You take that out, you're awake approximately 120 hours a week. Okay, you with me so far? 120 waking hours. Now look at the next, next piece of math. Now take out however many hours you spend in formal group Bible study or in a worship service. Now, I thought five was pretty generous. I don't know how much time you spend, if you count Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, maybe you have a Bible study during the week, your number may be a little bit bigger than the number five, but I just put that one up there. And if that's it, if that's all that you're doing, and you find that in your life you're not being changed by that amount of time devoted to God's Word, then I want to suggest to you that there's no transformation because there's a renewing of your mind that God wants to accomplish, and it's not going to be accomplished unless you begin to address the rest of your week. 115 hours. The 115 hours where you're doing other things. Your iPhone, your iPad, casual conversation, doing your job, riding in a vehicle, whatever it is that you do, are you using that time intentionally? Are you using that time strategically? Are you taking advantage of what God's Word says, that if you will take His Word into your heart, receive with meekness the engrafted Word, He will save or change your soul? A cookie-cutter approach to this. For some of you, it may be your daily time alone with God where he speaks to you and you take that scripture and maybe you write it down on a card and you stick it in your pocket and you walk around with that for one day, two days, three days, three months or however long it takes because that's a word from you from the Lord and it's becoming real to you as you think about it and you take it out while you're waiting at stoplights and you take it out while you're waiting in a doctor's office and you think about it and you reflect on it. The very things that, that may be distracting to you, like a cell phone, may be the very tool God could use to get even more of his word into your life if you use it strategically and with intentionality. 115 hours a week. How many hours do we spend receiving information from other sources besides God's word? You're not going to hear me stand here and condemn all forms of a particular kind of media, all radio, all TV, all film, all iPhones, all texts, all social media. I'm not going to do that. They're just forms of communication. The question is, is it coming into your life with no filters? Are you receiving it into your life and you never question what you're hearing? Is it just flooding into your soul? 
Let me show you what's happening if that's the case. Look at this next graphic. You have the world's perspective. If that's all you're getting, if that's the majority of what you're getting, then what's gonna, what are your thoughts going to be? Are your thoughts going to be godly thoughts or are they going to be worldly thoughts? It's going to be worldly thoughts. Remember the little garbage can this morning? If that's all I'm putting in constantly are worldly thoughts, that's the only kind of thoughts I'm going to have. In my idle moments, my mind's going to go to those things. My mind's going to go to what's happening in the news. My mind's going to go to the problems I have at home or the problem I have in my life or the things that are causing me anxieties. My mind's going to go to all those things. God's perspective going in where you have not only the lies that the world tells you, but you also have the truth that God reveals to you. And it begins to cancel out those worldly perspectives. And you begin to think God's thoughts after him. And over time, you begin to think like he thinks. And if your thinking is altered, what did we learn this morning about the mind? If my mind is altered, my entire life is going to be changed and transformed. And so if I want to change what's coming out of my life, I need to change what's going into my heart. And I need to do it on purpose. I need to be aggressive. I don't know where you need to begin. I don't know what it is that you're wrestling with, what you struggle with on the inside that maybe nobody else knows about. But whatever it is, that's where I would start. I would start with my biggest fear. I would start with my biggest worry. I would start with my biggest sin problem. I would start with my biggest uh, fear or anxiety or hurt or whatever it is that just rolls around in my mind and my heart and distracts me from, from knowing God. I'd start there. And I would carry that problem to the scripture and I would let God speak to that problem and if you need help with that that's why God gave you pastors and Sunday school teachers and deacons and others you can go to them and say what does the Bible say about this help me know what the Bible says about it and and we can go and we can sit down together and we can look at those passages of scripture together and one or two or three or more may really be helpful to you as you read them, it gives you peace. As you read them, it comforts you. As you read them, you realize God is speaking to you. And you say, I not only just want to read that between the covers of my Bible, I want that in my heart. And as you begin to meditate on truth instead of all the lies and the darkness of the enemy, your life's going to change. God's Word does what He sends it to do.